0: My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. We are live and I am here with Howard Inns. And we're going to talk about a very uh, interesting topic to me. And, you know, so the first thing I would say is that there are not a lot of reptile and conservation Uh, reptile and amphibian conservation organizations, excuse me, around the world, uh, compared to some other groups of wildlife. And so way back when uh, I was creating and forming the Orient Society, you know, I, I was researching you know, all these different uh, organizations and trying to learn. I was really astounded by the the lack of, of amphibian reptile conservation in that nonprofit sector. But I will say that there is this one nonprofit that I uh, found and I've kind of loosely followed over the years. And I've always been very interested in their work. And many of our listeners have probably uh especially our us-based listeners i bet have not heard about them but i'm hoping that you will all go check them out and this organization is called the amphibian and reptile conservation trust and we have one of their trustees with us today so welcome to the podcast howard
1: hi good good to be on
0: yeah it's good it's good to have you so uh, you know, I mentioned you're a trustee of the organization, but just, uh, I'm going to dive a little bit into your background, but, but who are you? What, what are you doing relative to amphibian reptile conservation? Where do you sit? Where do you work? Those types of things.
1: Okay. That's a, that's a, that's a good, great place to start. And I guess for me, perhaps like many herpetologists, I kind of started with my own personal interest and, uh personal motivations, which go right back, like all of us, to, to when I was a child. And uh, in the UK, we don't have very many uh, reptile amphibian species. We'll probably cover that as we talk. But um, I can remember going on holiday uh, right from the age of uh, five, six, seven, and catching lizards when I was on holiday. And that kind of sparked my interest. And then I think I probably saw my first snake in the wild in the UK when I was about eight. So this has developed for me from a, a very personal interest in the species themselves, and uh, and actually finding them in the wild. And I guess that's very similar to to, to many of us. But in the UK, where well, we've got three lizard species, three snake species, and and you know we've got six amphibians as well um you know there ain't much to choose from really <laughs> so and i guess then uh when i got to an age where you know i was mobile and i could actually go about and, and look at in different habitats for for different types of uh, for different species um then i started to sort of think through well hang on a minute you know i'm reading these books that were written you know 20 30 years ago and they talk about these places and they talk about the uh the species that I'm looking for being quite widespread and common, but I'm not finding them. And then I started to think, well, there must be people that are motivated to to do something about that. Uh, And that's when I got involved in the kind of conservation side of things. Um, And the amphibian and reptile conservation trust, we tend to refer to it as amphibian and reptile conservation, we formed from uh, what was originally a bunch of volunteers who are like-minded people that were feeling kind of the same way that I did way back in the uh, '70s and '80s um, uh, that that things were not looking as 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 we wanted them to, and and uh, you know we were we were starting to see quite significant declines in some of the the key species, particularly the more rare species. So I got involved voluntarily uh, in the 1980s uh, and started to come out with a group of other like-minded people as volunteers to try and do something about it. And what we focused on back in those days was um, to try and and focus on site conservation and habitat conservation. So the the species that we were most concerned about were the ones that are now uh, protected species in the UK. Um, and that's the smooth snake and the sand lizard, and they were restricted to a particular type of habitat or, or, or certain particular types but of habitat. Let's in, in let's particular- let's hold
0: on for a second, Howard, because we're sure. going we're going ninety miles an hour to what I want to talk about—the at the end of the podcast. I'm still at okay. your child. I'm still at your childhood. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> no, I, all that information is very good, and and um, I do want to talk about a lot more of that in depth. But so it's it sounds like you were fascinated by these things at a very young age, and your was your family first of all. Were they supportive of this interest, or was that?
1: Yeah, I was fascinated by these creatures at a very young age. Um, uh, my parents were great. They they always liked going out into the countryside, so they they kind of took me places. Did they share the interest that I had? Possibly not, but but they 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 tolerated it and they encouraged it, you know. And Mm I I'd I'd research places to go and say, Dad, I'd really like to go and see this place because I think we'd be able to find this particular species there. And you know, he'd take me. Um, And and you know, I've ended up living very close to one of the places that he he used to bring me. So oh, yeah, they okay. were supportive.
0: And you do, I'm assuming you live in the UK now, is that right?
1: I live in the UK. I've always lived in the UK. So I live in uh in southwest Surrey, which is very close to some of the Heathland sites that are super important for for all reptiles, but particularly for the rare species, the smooth snake and the sand lizard.
0: Yeah, I noticed that's one of the ecosystems that uh, can I call it ARC? Is that what you use yeah, as an acronym? Is one of Yeah. So is that, uh, that's one of the ecosystems that ARC focuses on quite a bit. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. So you, Mm -hmm. so you grow up with this fascination for these animals, you have a supportive family, and you've already mentioned that, uh, there was a group of volunteers that were noticing some of the patterns or the lack of these animals, despite what the literature you're reading was telling you. So, um, so I'm assuming there's a point in your life where, well, first of all, I'm assuming that your day job or your career as it was, uh, whatever that might have been was not in this field. Cause you, maybe I'm wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, but you mentioned doing the amphibian reptile work on the, as a volunteer. Um, but, but in either case, there had to be a point in, in your development, uh, you know, in your life where you had to make a conscious decision, like, I love these animals. Should I move in this direction to have a career uh, or should I go in another direction and then, uh, you know, conserve these animals or work with these animals in other ways. What, tell us a little bit about that time in your life and how some of those decisions, uh, kind of came, came about.
1: Okay. That's, a, that's a, that's an interesting topic. So they, I, I guess I got to that point where I was, um, Frustrated a little by the fact that I couldn't find these animals where I'd uh, I'd anticipated seeing them, so my impetus for getting involved in conservation was to meet people that that, whose knowledge I could share in. You know, I could could contribute my knowledge, they could, and I would benefit from from what they knew. Um, And it was getting to know those getting to know those people that uh, really brought me to the point that you describe, which is a point where. You know, you say to yourself, "I've got a good career in the IT industry." So my entire career was in the IT industry, and I and I stayed in the IT industry for my entire career. Um, if I do that, what, and and when I started to uh, get involved with other people that were concerned about these animals as well, you kind of make the choice of, "Do I stay, you know, working in the field that I'm, you know, got a good career in, uh, or do I give it all up?" to 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 concentrate on conservation and i found that i could actually contribute in in both ways so i could still do an awful lot as a volunteer Uh, i could still contribute in a couple of ways actually in the kind of totally practical way of going out looking for things and monitoring populations and getting involved in habitat management but also the experience that you get in business could be well once we started running the charity that experience in business also helped in the running of the charity, and as a trustee, that's what I could contribute as well. Hmm. Okay, uh, very
0: interesting. So you, so you kind of make this life decision. You're going to continue on your career path, but you found these other ways uh, through volunteer work. I'm, I'm assuming through you know some philanthropy and, and donating some of your resources as well as your time that you could really have an impact on these these things that you love, the snakes and lizards and frogs and such. And uh, so I, I guess I want to get into ARC, but before we do that, you've already touched on it, but I do want to give our audience a little bit of an overview. So ARC primarily works in the UK. It seems like based yeah. on what I can what I can see, there are some projects in other places or partnerships, but in general, the bulk of the work is in the UK. So just tell us a little bit about the snakes, maybe the amphibians or reptiles in general, you kind of already gave us the numbers, but maybe a little more in depth on the snakes of the UK.
1: Okay, uh, we've got three species of snakes in the UK. Um, We've got uh, the grass snake, or what we refer to as the grass snake, which is a Natricine snake. uh, Natrix helvetica is classified as now. Um, And that's in the same sort of family as the the garter snakes in in the US. So it's a water-loving snake, um, feeds predominantly on amphibians. Um, Then we've got uh, a snake in the viper family, the European northern viper, berus. Um, which is, you know, I suppose if you sort of follow their hierarchies up, it, it, it kind of comes together with the hierarchy of the, the, uh, the rattlesnakes in the US. Um, fairly short snake, it's uh, no more than two feet or about 60 centimetres in length. Um, and that, you know, like most of the, the species in the, that group have got has got some uh, venomous capability, so it's got a venomous bite, um, not a lethal bite for humans generally, but... Uh, Still not, you know, it's still a, a, an a, a, an animal to be respected because of its venom. And then finally, we've got the smooth snake, which is, uh, um, uh, again, a fairly small snake, uh, non-venomous, um, and that is a specialist in in terms of where it lives. So it's right on the northern edge of its range. So it only lives in the south of the country. Um, and uh, that's the one that's confined to Heathland, And because Heathland has that is a hot habitat uh, and can therefore, you know, provide the sort of temperature ranges that that animal needs. The other two snakes, the adder um, or the northern viper, extends right the way up into Scotland. So that that's right the way through the UK. Uh, the grass snake extends up roundabout to the borders of Scotland. And there have been one or two observations within Scotland itself. Um, so that's a more southern loving species. And... Um, Whatever you believe uh, about St. Patrick, who was supposed to banish the snakes from Ireland, there are no snakes <laughs> on the island of Ireland. And um, so, they're, so they're, the focus is very much uh, on the yeah. mainland UK and Wales and Scotland incorporated in that of course.
0: Yeah, based on what you've said, I'm assuming that at least uh, within the UK um, that the, of those three, that the smooth snake is probably your greatest conservation concern that the other, you know, the adder and the grass snake are are more common, more widely distributed, certainly. Um, Is that the case?
1: Uh, It's kind of the case. It certainly was the case when we kind of kicked things off back in the sort of 70s and 80s, because, and the reason for that was because Heathland itself as a habitat was under so much challenge, so much threat, um, and we risk losing the smooth snakes along with all the other specialist species that uh, that sit in that habitat. But but with the work that we've done and the, a, a much broader recognition in the conservation community of the importance of uh, dry lowland heath, then you you know we've we've come a long way with the smooth snake, um, and that we we've got some good populations on the the heaths in Dorset and Surrey. Um, so it's always a, a bit of a challenge to say this, but it's a species that's doing okay, you know? Yeah, okay. So, so we've well, got we've got that sorted. But just to, let me just go back to your other point. So the ones, the adder and the, and the grass snake, to me now, are more the animals of conservation concern. And mm-hmm. partly because they're more widespread and they're not necessarily tied to one specific habitat type, then their populations are more at risk. And there is strong evidence that those populations are declining. Mm,
0: Okay. So back to the smooth snake first. But first for our audience, could you describe what a heathland is in terms, I mean, is it a grassland? Is it a wetland? Is it somewhere in between? Um, And why is, is, is that ecosystem or that habitat type threatened itself? Like what is the forces that are impacting it?
1: okay so it's a, a a kind of vegetation structure that typically exists on very impoverished soils so it typically exists on sands and gravels where not much can grow um it's referred to as a dwarf shrub community uh, and the predominant um vegetation types are heathers um there are other there are other dwarf, dwarf shrubs as well like uh, gorse which is a a, a plant that is very familiar to in Europe, I don't know whether it exists, it's a spiny plant. I'm not sure whether it exists in the in the in North America. Um, so what, what you see is a, a kind of low level, uh, you know, foot tall type of vegetation structure. Because it exists on sandy soils, it warms up very quickly. Um, and it also has lots of exposed patches. So there's quite a lot of bare soil patches. And that's extremely important for things like invertebrates, um, uh, spiders, um, uh, solitary wasps. Uh, and there are some uh, moths and butterflies that, that, that are sort of specialist on that uh, vegetation community. And the reason that, that I guess it was threatened is that from an agricultural perspective, it was pretty much a wasteland. You know, it, it had very little value as from an agricultural perspective. And typically, what was happening is is two things. One, it was either, and after the Second World War, this happened a lot. It was either being planted up with uh, with with, with fast growing coniferous trees, uh, and then that destroyed its value from a wildlife perspective because it came became a forest rather than a nice open, hot, sunny environment. Or it was used for for development, which could either be housing or there were some big industrial estates planted on some of the previous heathlands. Um, so it wasn't regarded as a, as a habitat or, or, a, or an area of intrinsic value, if you see what I mean. Um, so, you know, in, the, in the, the dark old days, that meant that it would be developed and changed or turned into forestry. Uh, I like to think we're a bit more enlightened now, and we've got some fantastic, just fantastic, Heathland and nature reserves that are, you know, designated as uh, as nature reserves and, and will remain so, hopefully.
0: I just wanted to take a quick break and uh, tell you guys that snakes are one of the most persecuted groups of animals in the world. Unfortunately, most snakes that encounter people end up dead, but the Orient Society is dedicated to changing that. Go to www.orianne.org to learn more and join the effort to stop the persecution. Hmm. Well, well, we'll get into the uh, to arc here in a minute. But while we're talking about snakes, I would also like to talk to you about the adder. As many of my audience knows, I am a viper Fanatic. I've worked around the world. I founded the IUCN Viper Specialist Group. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the uh, Vipra Barris has always been an, a fascinating animal to me. I've never seen one in the wild. Um, and so, you, first of all, you mentioned it's widespread across uh, the UK. It's also venomous, obviously. You mentioned that. What's, first of all, what's kind of the the habitat for that species, or is it somewhat generalist? Does it cover a variety of habitats, or is it a little more um, specific? It's just that that specific habitat is more widespread.
1: No, it's, it's, it's not really a generalist. You wouldn't describe it as a generalist. It's a it likes heathlands. So the heathlands that we manage for the other species are always very good for, or nine times out of ten, they're very good for adders. But it's an it's a it's an open habitat or an edge habitat specialist. So you will find it on um, things like scrubbed up grassland. Uh, You'll find it in woodland edges as well. You'll find it on road embankments and rail embankments that are kind of kept clear of trees. So it needs that mix of, Mm. you know, a a little bit of cover, but but not deep, deep tree canopy. Um, And sea cliffs are another really, really, really good uh, habitat for it. So it likes that. So it's not a generalist. And so, it, whilst it's widespread, it's local. So yeah. it's widespread geographically, but you'll only find it in those localities that have that kind of vegetation structure.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, obviously, you live at. Uh... Pretty high latitude, and so um, these animals are obviously spending a, a, yeah. maybe a significant chunk of the year uh, below the frost line somewhere. Um, and you know, like a lot of our rattlesnakes uh, in the U.S. do very similar thing, uh, but in different parts of the country here uh, or the continent, depending on the climate and some other factors. How they do that varies. Like you might have these big communal dens in, say, northern states that where you might literally have hundreds and hundreds of animals that go to one place to overwinter. And then uh, down here, more in the southeast where I'm based, uh, you might have uh, you know one animal here, two there. How do they? How does kind of their winter ecology look? Are they going to these large communal sites, or are they really kind of distributing themselves across the landscape to find their wintering
1: habitat? They do tend to hibernate communally, but they're not big, big communal sites. So they'll there'll be a site where you know you might be hibernating 10, 12 individuals. So you'll see 10, 12 individuals around the base of a of a of a tree, for example, that has got rabbit burrows going into it or other ma- mammal burrows going into it. So they'll adopt things like uh, mammal burrows to hibernate in. Um but yeah, it, and and so it's not a it's not a big big communal hibernator, but it does mean that those hibernation sites where they exist are super important because they will always come back to those sites. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the survey effort that we put in is in spring and in the autumn or the fall to try and find those sites that the uh, the adders are going back to. Um, and as, if you can map those, and make sure they're protected um, against sort of adverse uh, um, management practices, then that's really, really quite important for the conservation of the adder.
0: Yeah, certainly. So if they are an animal of the edge and they're widely distributed, I know you said they're kind of patchy within their distribution. But um, if that's the case, I have to assume that there are people – interact with them. People bump into them. Um, and so I'm just curious, uh, if we can generalize about people, obviously we're all different, but in a very general sense, how do communities and individuals in the UK react to, uh, adders? Is it kind of the same as most places on earth with venomous snakes or is, is it generally a little more different?
1: Um, that's an interesting topic to to, to consider. Um, I, first of all, I'd say that uh, adders on um, nature reserves are tolerated and valued, and a lot of the people that visit those nature reserves will be enthusiastic about seeing animals, um, about seeing adders. Where you get a problem is where adders are where exist where people are less comfortable with them existing. Um, and one of the, the biggest conflicts that we have in the UK is uh, adders versus dogs because uh, people walk in their dogs, you know, dogs investigate with their nodes, which is quite a nice handy little button to bite for an adder. <laughs> um, so, you know, dog and adder interactions don't generally end particularly well for the dog. Although they're rarely fatal, in, 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 in all honesty, um, but it does, that does generate some, some animosity towards adders. They are protected against being killed, so it is illegal to kill them. And, you know, back in the dark days, even back in the sort of 60s and 70s, before that protection came in, you would see adders killed and hung up on a barbed wire fence, for example, particularly by farmers, I like to think that we've got to a more sort of informed level now, and that rarely happens. Partly, it rarely happens because there aren't so many adders about, but I do think that we are generally more informed. So, on balance, I would say that um, they're they're generally understood and generally tolerated quite well, but there are still pockets of uh, animosity towards adders.
0: So, would you say? I mean, vipers in general, if they're not directly killed in one form or another, based on their life history and population biology, oftentimes do relatively well. Like you could take, say, a timber rattlesnake population here, and if you stopped persecuting and killing those adult animals in particular, um, their populations can often rebound quite quick. So would you say that the adder populations in the UK are on a positive trajectory then or negative or don't,
1: you know. no they're not on a positive trajectory at all and i guess the challenge for us is that it's very interesting that you you kind of cite persecution as as what, what it sounds like as the primary reason for uh for for adder pop, uh, for, for timber rattlesnake populations for example um uh, not being as good as they could be there's something else going on with the adder And that's what we don't quite understand. We're not quite there yet with deeply understanding why some of the populations that we would anticipate to thrive better than they do are actually not thriving. Now, part of that is definitely habitat. The extent of their habitat is, is you know, perhaps being compromised, but there may be something more subtle going on. There may be something more subtle going on with food source, for example. And without, we we need to do more work to sample small mammal populations and fledged and ground nesting bird populations because they are significant prey items for for the adder to really understand what's going on. So it's it's sadly is not on a tra- positive trajectory generally, uh, the adder, um, and we do need to do more work to actually find out what the underlying reasons for that are. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, uh, you mentioned that the adders are protected. What are the regulations generally for all the snake species are they all all three considered protected species in the uk um or uh is that not the case
1: they're they're all protected against uh, being killed um the the smooth snake has a higher level of protection so it's illegal to disturb its habitats it's illegal to handle them it's illegal to capture them it's illegal to hold them in captivity uh without a license um and that yeah as much as it is possible to enforce any wildlife legislation that that legislation is enforced and to the main in the main respected as well um so yeah the the smooth snake has got a a special level of protection because its populations are so limited geographically
0: yeah and are they outside of the uk do they have a much wider uh distribution yes they
1: do yeah all three of our snake species are quite widely (coughs) distributed on the uh the European mainland, um, you get into different subspecies uh, in certain areas of the, the European mainland. But the, the subspecies that exist in the UK all exist in quite extensive populations in the other parts of Europe. I've got to be honest: the the, the kind of general um, dynamics of, of snake populations in Europe, I don't think is any better than it is in the UK. I spent a fair bit of time in France. And the snake populations in France, to my mind, in my experience in the sort of 30, 40 years that I've been going to France looking for snakes, they're much, much harder to find now.
0: Much harder yeah. to
1: find than they used to be. Hmm.
0: It's unfortunate.
1: Uh, last question about uh, kind of
0: snakes, and then we'll move on to, to talking about uh, ARC and the conservation sure. project. So uh, with the adder, um, you know, I know. That there's quite there can be quite a bit of what we call phenotypic variation, or or, or just variation in how they physically look, um, their colors in particular, their patterns. And we don't. There's some interesting work that's been going on in terms of why that might be. But I'm just curious. Um, is is if you go and you f- see an adder in the UK, do they always have a typical look, like a color pattern, or do you see a wide variation? And, and what what are those patterns that you see?
1: They they are very variable. Um, the predominant pattern, uh, and and this is the sort of diagnostic feature of an adder, is a distinct zigzag down the back of the, uh, down, the down the dorsal surface. So right the way down the back, the dark zigzag. Uh, Females tend to be brown shades of brown. Males tend to have a dark zigzag against a a lighter uh, background. Um, You do get all black individuals as well. But it's very interesting that you you say that that the sort of phenotypes are are changing because one thing that we've noticed over the last couple of years is that we found a couple of sites um, along the south coast where we're finding individuals... With a with a, a straighter stripe down the middle of the back, mm. if you like. So instead of a zigzag, is a is a is a, a, a more linear pattern, um, and it's intriguing that, that those have started to appear because yeah. they are atypical, and you, we don't see those in many other populations. But in two or three places in the southeast, we are seeing we have seen those in the last few years. It's a yeah, pretty snake, though. It's a really pretty little snake.
0: Yeah. And that's what I was asking. That's interesting about those straight lines. I mean, oftentimes that like lateral lines or lengthwise lines on snakes are associated with really fast snakes. And it's thought of as kind of a mechanism for helping them get away. Cause you, you go to grab the snake in one place, but those lines deceive you and you end up grabbing where it was anyways, but great. Well, appreciate all that information on snakes in the UK. I mean, that was really uh, educational for me. Um, I've, uh, you know, just never really read much about snakes in the UK or, or thought much about it. So thank you for that. First of all. Um, And then let's talk about this organization that I mentioned in the beginning that, that, you know, I've thought about quite a bit over the years um, as I developed a nonprofit and, 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 so I didn't realize it, but you are one of the founders of ARC. Is that correct?
1: Uh, I'm, I'm not really one of the founders, no. I, I was an early stage trustee. So because i had been involved on a voluntary basis when we all started as volunteers, um, the knowledge that I've built up, particularly the knowledge of the sites, um, was, was seen as, as valuable and some of the other skills that I could bring from the kind of commercial world. Was seen as valuable, so I was invited to to join the board of trustees after the organisation had been established, as it were. Ah,
0: okay, and so uh, tell us a little bit about the mission. Uh, so, w- what does uh, amphibian reptile conservation like? What's the mission of the organisation?
1: So, so our mission, Chris, really, is to safeguard healthy populations where where we know that they exist. So, uh, we do that predominantly through habitat management. And uh, we do that by either acquiring reserves ourselves or managing reserves for others that have got good populations of, uh, of reptiles and amphibians. But it really is to make sure that we can, we can maintain viable populations of our native species. That's really what our mission is all about.
0: Mm-hmm. And is it, uh, you mentioned you're a volunteer and you're a trustee, and in many organizations, trustees are say primarily focused on say the financial side of things, whether that's you know revenue raising money, but um, I'm sure that's part of what you guys do, but it sounds like um, your board also does a great deal of work on the ground. And so what I'm getting at is how's the organization structured? Um, is it an organization where the board is primarily doing the bulk of the work, or do you have staff that are really working to implement uh, and, and achieve the mission. No, not at
1: all. I, the, the, the mission is achieved by the staff. So we've got over forty uh, staff now, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the the staff are run uh, under the management of the uh, the chief executive officer, the CEO, Dr. Tony Gent. Um, so they do the work. They absolutely do the work. Um, and they're they're split into species squads, reserve squads, science and uh, education and communication so we've got a number of core work streams Mm -hmm. uh the trustees are there as you describe as a trustee would be in any charity which is to make sure that the the charity is has got a a clear strategy agreed and that it's working within the the kind of financial envelope that uh, has been established for it we're I guess we're lucky in that a lot of our trustees, as well as having some of those financial skills or legal skills or marketing skills, have also got a deep knowledge of herpetology or academic skills, of course. They've also got a deep knowledge of herpetology. So what we do is to, to associate each of the trustees with the work stream that makes most sense for them. So for me, because my career was in communications and marketing, I tend to focus in that area. Um, other trustees whose background is in finance tend to focus in the the area of finance. So the work is absolutely done by the staff, and and we've got an incredibly dedicated and hardworking staff, uh, many of whom have been with us for a long time. Uh, and what the trustees try to do is to is to help them by providing uh, the skills that they may have acquired outside the uh, the, the charity, uh, or by helping them with their kind of historic uh, herpetological knowledge.
0: Great. And so how is the organization structured? And and I just, this is kind of just an interest point for me, because our organization, we are, uh, you know, at one point we were working towards having everybody based together in one headquarters. Um, but, you know, now we're really moving to more of a dispersed like, telecommuting, if you will, type model. I'm just curious, is there like a big central headquarters where the majority of staff are based or is it really kind of a really widespread, diverse, uh, geographically, uh, organization?
1: We have got a headquarters uh, and that's down in Bournemouth on the South Coast. But I guess the the fundamental point is that a lot of our staff are, are, are based around nature reserves. So we have got teams of people that are out working in the field the whole time. Um, so we've got a team down in Dorset, which is one of the key areas for the heat and habitat that we talked about earlier. We've got a team up here in Surrey, um, and we've got other teams in Wales, for example. And then there's a small team up in Norfolk as well, uh, who are involved with the pool frog, which is one of the frog species that, uh, that, that we're focused on. Um, so a lot, of the, a lot of the folk are based outside the office. But we have developed into very much a telecommuting organisation. The head office is there for the sort of administration, IT, finance, marketing, uh, and that type of support. And because it's located in the south of the country, close to the reserves that we've got in the Dorset area, um, it also provides a bit of a home for those folk when they do need to come into the office. And it's not too far for the, the Surrey folk to travel in as well.
0: Gotcha. And uh, so uh, there are these multiple kind of work streams that you mentioned. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that uh, reserve or or work stream or the land protection, uh, because it sounds like that's a really big component uh, of what you guys do. And so first of all, do you How do you implement these? Are these, I mean, land conservation is done in a variety of different ways in different parts of the world. Is this something where ARC is purchasing and owning a series of properties? Is it something where there's maybe a government system, like here in the US, we have conservation easements, where it's you know, like a, an agreement, the landowner still holds the land, but there are restrictions and they're paid for these, Da da da, or, or some other approach, creation of national parks. But ha- how do you guys implement land conservation for these reptiles and amphibians?
1: Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a combination of all the things that you've described. So the, you know, number one, if we've got the money, and we can acquire land that is uh, that, that, that would constitute a good reptile or amphibian reserve. Um, we will buy it if we if we can if we can get the money together. Um, and we have bought uh, a good number of reserves over the years. Um, so we own a, a number down in Dorset, a number in Surrey, um, and those are predominantly the the areas that where we've got land ownership. And once we've got land ownership, then the, the, the management regime is up to us. There are other areas that we manage under license with the with the landowner. So they may, for example, be areas that the Ministry of Defence own for military training, and we've got some really good reserves on military training areas under an agreement with the uh, the Ministry of Defence. Um, we have got some uh, agreements. For site management with the Forestry Commission, which is the agency, the government agency that's associated with with forested areas in the UK. Uh, And they own that land. um, And we have management agreements on on some of that. And we we have other uh, reserves. There's reserves down here, for example, which are owned by the um, local authority. Um, and we will manage parts of those reserves that are particularly good for reptiles and amphibians under an agreed uh, regime or, 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 or prescription for the, for the site. Um, and we will often do it in conjunction with, uh, with people from, from those agencies. So we will work with the, the local authority and their range of staff uh, to implement the management plans that we have. But, but we've got 18 nature reserves all, all together, which is a combination of owned and uh, managed under license or managed under agreement with other people. And we aim for each one to have a, a formal management agreement so that everybody knows what we're planning to do. The other thing that we have to be cognizant of is that the land that's managed tends to have a, a statutory designation. So one of the designations in the UK is referred to as site of special scientific interest or SSSI and the management prescription for every site of special scientific interest need to be agreed. And you need to stick within the, the regime of agreed activities for that site within the management envelope. Um, so we, we work very closely uh, with the agencies that, are, that, that manage that process. Um, a primary amongst those is an organization called Natural England, uh, and there's equivalents in Wales and Scotland, um, that would enable us to get
0: the management prescription right for each site. Mm, okay, great. Well, land conservation is hugely important all around the world. Um, so I'm glad there's somebody taking the lead with with some of these species. So let's let's talk about uh, some of these species-based work streams. And I, I think there's probably a variety of things that you do for species. Um, uh, in terms of one thing I noticed from the website was kind of these, you know, Let's just call it like husbandry related approaches to conservation. Things such as reintroductions, translocations, head starting, captive breeding those that category of approaches. Um, and I did notice some of that on your website. And I was just curious, um, how much of that uh, do you guys do? And uh, in particular, are there any snakes uh, that you're, you're using those
1: approaches with? Okay, we we use uh, we use and a variety of approaches of that nature so and then a lot of them are sort of species dependent to be honest chris so um, we will use captive breeding for the sand lizard and we have done for many many years so we have got some captive facilities and facilities that are basically big open-air vivaria where we we maintain a, a population of sand lizards that lay eggs we incubate the eggs we head start the young and we release the young onto donor sites to extend the range of the, uh, of the of the species or to put it back on sites where it used to exist. Um, you know, a lot of that started uh, back in the 70s where we were talking earlier on about the fact that a lot of Heathland sites got developed into either industrial estates or housing estates um, or, or forestry. And we used to go and collect the animals that lived on those sites to to save them being ploughed into the ground, basically. So we started reintroductions because we had animals that had been rescued. And that was true for sanders. but it was also true to the point that you wanted to get to, which is about snakes. It was also true of smooth snakes. Sadly, there were sites that were being developed down in Dorset where snakes would otherwise have been ploughed into the ground. So we'd go and capture them uh, and then we'd move them to sites either locally uh, or sites that we were managing and we knew could 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 take smooth snakes, so we would reintroduce them there. Mm, we've okay. never done any captive breeding of snakes, to be honest. We've not done that. Um, there have been other projects that we've been associated with where we've moved other snake species, grass snakes and uh, and adders, but for none of those snakes have we ever done any captive breeding.
0: Thank you for listening to Snake Talk. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, you can help us by subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, be sure to leave us a review. How about some of the other... uh, uh, approaches that are you know kind of in focused on species um you know I noticed that you guys do a lot of uh, conservation planning uh, you know I would call it for example meaning working with maybe government agencies other nonprofits but really laying out conservation strategies uh for species um and I'm assuming that's a a, a big part of what you guys are focused on for some of these is that accurate
1: That is accurate and I think you know as we move forward, there's going to be a lot more of that that, that goes on. So we're, um, we we have always worked very closely with the other non governmental organisations that are that are focused on other species. Um, and there's an organisation called Rethink Nature that we were a, a, an original partner for uh, that brings a lot of those organisations together. And increasingly, what I can see happening and what's already happening on the ground is that we're working with those those organizations. They, the, the biggest of them is the uh, RSPB, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. So they're, you know, the species group in the UK focused on birds. They've got some fantastic reserves. Uh, and we work incredibly closely with them on um, making sure that those reserves work for all, all species. Um, and in fact, where I sit looking out of the window, um, I can actually see the edge of an RSPB reserve that we've got um, fantastic reptile populations. We've got some great invertebrate populations. So I'm often out there with the guys in the RSPB working on that reserve. Um, And I think that the future is going to be more and more collaborations like that. Um, Butterfly Conservation in the UK have got some great reserves as well. Um, And uh, again, working closely with them, we can make sure that the management prescriptions that they have... For butterflies which are often very very precise mm-hmm. butterfly species will also work for the reptiles that uh, that exist on those reserves yeah, so that's huh. the future i can see
0: that's great it sounds like you must live in a very nice place too if you're looking out your window to nature reserve so
1: i am lucky <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I am lucky as well. I live in a, a very rural wild place. But but anyways, back to the uh back to ARC. So how about research? Um, I know that's an important part of conservation. It's it's maybe not always it's not the on-the-ground action, but it often informs those actions. Is that something that you guys implement research on these species yourself, or do you, you know, say partner with uh, local universities. How, how do you approach that research question and, and uh, obtaining the knowledge you need to make uh, relatively accurate decisions for your actions?
1: Yeah, we 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 invest as much as we possibly can into research. Uh, typically, what we will do is to sponsor uh, PhD studies on 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 particular species or particular aspects of. Uh, of conservation. So one that we sponsored recently um, was to look in a bit more detail at a sand desert re- reintroduction site and look at how the animals that we were introducing were dispersing across those that site. Um, and that that is immensely helpful in working out the management prescription uh, if we are putting animals back onto a site that didn't didn't previously have them. Uh, so we can see how far they spread how much they sort of hang around the areas that, uh, that we originally introduced them to. And we sponsored many other um, uh, uh, PhD students in a, in a similar way. Uh, we've got one coming up, and this is an interesting one. Um, one of the conflicts that we have in the UK uh, is a conflict between uh, released game birds and uh, reptiles. So every year in the UK, there are literally millions and untold millions of pheasants released, uh, which are used, you know, people go out and shoot them. And um, we're, we're, you know, only too well aware that those pheasants will eat certainly young reptiles um, and probably quite quite well-grown reptiles, to be honest. Uh, but we, that's never really been quantified or studied in any detail. So we're working towards having a PhD um focus on that particular topic which i think will be very revealing
0: yeah that'll be interesting um and certainly uh you probably would be able to get a lot of those pheasants in hand and examine their gut contents and other things so anyways that's uh, yeah. that's great how about the la- the last kind of uh work stream if you will that i want to talk about was policy um and uh, you know we orient society we do the research and we do a lot of the on the ground conservation action but we do stay away from like lobbying litigation uh, policy for the most part policy related work so but i did see some of that on your website so i'm just curious one what type of policy work you do and then two how do you balance that working in the policy world with the kind of boots on the ground world if you will
1: That's it. That that you, you've identified that as a potential area of conflict quite 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 succinctly there, uh, and it is tricky to get the the line right. Uh, we do get involved in policy work, uh, and we're quite lucky to have a number of senior staff that have previously worked for the uh, conservation agency, the government conservation agency, and that's incredibly helpful because they understand how the systems work. So we will. Um, get involved in what we hope is a very sort of constructive and uh, a a, a sort of collaborative way uh, where we possibly can to try and influence policy. Um, You know, there's a couple of sort of hot topics around at the moment. Um, There is a review going on of our wildlife protection legislation that's going on right at this moment, which is basically looking at the lists of animals that are protected and trying to determine whether the right ones are are being offered the right level of protection. And there was a time when part of that review had the potential to take some of the species that we've got concerns about off the list of being protected, which is something that clearly we didn't want. So we've tried to work as closely as we possibly can with the government agencies to work out what the criteria should be for listing animals or delisting animals um, because we were concerned about the criteria that they were using particularly for delisting animals um, so we will try and influence policy in in that way um and there there are other there are other species that we've worked with kind of outside the reptile area the more in the amphibian space where um, we've got protected species that They're protected, but they're nevertheless quite widespread. So they come into conflict with developers quite a lot. So we've been trying to work out policies where we can mitigate that um, and have a good outcome for both the developer and the species concerned. Um, So we do get involved in policy and experimentation of what what could work um, to try and come up with the right type of solution. So, yeah, we do get involved in that.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a fine line and can be a hard one to walk, but it it sounds like you guys are (laughs) doing it well. Uh, well this, uh, so amphibian, uh, reptile conservation trust, as I mentioned earlier is one of the organizations that, uh, inspired me over the years. And, uh, and, and so I hope it inspires other people, even if they do not live in the UK, uh, to think about conservation uh, of animals in whatever part of the world uh, they live in. So if anybody wanted to get on uh, your website and learn more about the organization and uh, maybe make a donation to support, how where would they find you?
1: It's uh, ark-trust.org. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, that's, that's all you need to know, really.
0: Great. Well, I encourage all of our audience to go check it out. Um, It's, uh, you know, maybe not the most diverse region of the world. uh, But again, uh, it is one of the nonprofits that uh, inspired me uh, as I was developing the Orient Society. Uh, So the last thing I want to do, and then uh, we will close out here, is... I like to have all of my guests tell me their best snake story. Take it away.
1: Okay, well, I thought long and hard about this, Chris, because uh, um, you know we've all got loads of stories but the, the the one I've chosen is it actually relates to the grass snake. So the grass snake in the UK, Uh, is an egg-laying snake. So the other two snakes, they they bear live young. Uh, But the grass snake lays eggs. And because the UK is is pretty cold, to be honest, they have to find somewhere warm to to lay those eggs. And typically, um, particularly in a garden setting, and gardens are actually quite good in the south of England for grass snakes, because, particularly in rural areas, um, because they're generally quite open. They quite often have a garden pond. Um, so grass snakes get attracted into to feed on the amphibians and fish that might live in the garden pond. <clears throat> but the other the other uh, feature that they always have is a is a compost heap. Now I, I I'm kind of hoping that compost heap translates okay, uh, but it's basically the pile of cut vegetation that you create yeah. when you pick we, up. yeah
0: yeah no we have we have the same thing here so okay
1: okay so. And as that rots down, it generates a bit of warmth. And that's where the grass snakes like to, to lay their eggs, okay? Uh, now, I personally, I've got grass snakes in the garden. I have, I've got ponds in the garden. So I get visiting grass snakes come and browse from my newts and, uh, and eat my frogs in the ponds, which is great. Um, you know, I love to see them, my favorite snake. Um, but much as I tried to build the ideal compost heap, they never come, okay? Okay. <laughs> now so they don't lay eggs in my compost seat. now i got a call this is several years ago uh i got a call from somebody not too far away um because the local authority used to have my my name as the you know somebody to go out and help with snakes and uh i took off with a with one of my colleagues um and we went to see this beautiful garden in another part of surrey surrey's got some really big properties um beautiful garden, and they've got a nice compost heap on the edge of the lawn. And uh, this compost heap, it was pretty scruffy, actually, the compost heap. It was a bit mucky, um, and uh, but it had attracted loads of grass snakes. So it must have been there for some time, and these grass snakes had become accustomed to using it. So I was super excited because we turned over this compost heap because the owners had said, we've got snakes in our garden. Can you come and get rid of them? We don't like them. And um, we turned over this compost heap and revealed a huge clutch of, of eggs, probably over 100 eggs, because these oh, things, wow. when they lay, they'll, they'll cluster their, their, their clutches of eggs together. So that in this compost heap, as we turned it over, there were probably this big mass of eggs, and there was probably five big female snakes there. And the snakes, because they'd been in this mucky compost heap, they looked pretty mucky. They were quite dull in colour. Uh, and they look pretty mucky, but of course, me being me and my colleague being my colleague, we were super excited to see this massive <laughs> of snakes and this massive eggs and I remember we we called the because own, the owners of the house had kind of left us to it, but we called called them over and said, "You've got to come and see this. this is amazing and the lady of the house came up and uh, she kind of looked over our shoulder and The disgust on her face (laughs) and the shock on her face, and she said, "That is utterly revolting." (laughs) And you know, for me, (laughs) slightly negative story perhaps, but for me, it was a reminder that you know, much as you and I, Chris, love these animals, you know, they're not everybody's cup of tea. (laughs) To use use an English expression, Um, you know, not everybody loves these animals. And I think we kind of have to always remember that, you know, because whatever we're doing, you know, we are dealing with, for some people, a, a deeply unpopular animal. You know, some people, as you know, they can't even look at a picture of a snake.
0: Yeah. yeah. You know, I have family members like that who yeah. can't see a snake on TV and, you
1: know, so. yeah. Well, I good love,
0: yeah. I love that story. Uh, what a great experience and, uh, what a great reminder as you mentioned. So, um, well, uh, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, I know you have somewhere to be, but I do want to thank you, um, very much Howard for, for joining us today. I learned quite a bit and I, I enjoyed it as well.
1: Yeah, me too. Thank you very much, Chris.
0: Right, and I just wanted to thank our audience and tell everybody to remember snakes are animals too and it's a privilege to see one in the wild